Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the August Athens column. We'll be talking about elephants in the room. This is a term with which we're all probably familiar. It's a generic metaphorical idiom and refers to a problem of which everyone is cognizant, but about which no one really wants to speak. While investigating the origins of the term, I learned that it is thought to have first been used in Krilov's book, The Inquisitive Man. In the course of this novel, the protagonist, despite picking up on many small details, fails to see, or more correctly, acknowledge the obvious one, the elephant. The reasons for that elephants largely stem from sensitivities, the potential to cause embarrassment, encroachment on subjects that are largely taboo. All elephants, of course, involve a degree of repression and mostly are ultimately better off unfettered. I think this issue has achieved that. Let's start with the two papers about trust. Paul Ward's absorbing editorial on the and equally thought-provoking paper by Lefebvre et al. is a great place to start. The paper examines reasons for the low uptake of HPV vaccination, the mainstay of cervical cancer prevention, in French adolescents, where less than 14% complete the course. Intriguingly, it presents the findings of a series of interviews with physicians with contact with adolescents and their attitude to the vaccination. The overriding theme was that the doctor's attitude to the vaccine reflected that of society, and that implicit in discussing vaccination is a discussion of sexuality and their own medical training left them ill-equipped to engage with these consultations. The editorial expands this theme in the way in which a doctor in a position of authority can no longer command trust simply by dint of her or his position. And though trust is an adhesive which defines much human behaviour, it does require a leap of faith by at least one party. Let's move on to non-accidental injury, new old clues. We might believe we're sensitive to child abuse in its protein manifestations. The three papers cast new light on less well-acknowledged areas. In one large US-wide analysis of children assessed for abuse, the EXTRA study, Dorfman et al. undertook nearly 3,000 consultations. Of these, 3.3% had oral injury. In these, skeletal surveys were obtained in 84%. Of those, 25% had occult fractures. 75% had neuroimaging, and 38% identified injuries. Those undergoing fundoscopy, 28% of exams had retinal hemorrhages. Harris's editorial expands this theme, examining dental caries as a marker of low-grade chronic neglect, the early warning sentinel oral injury before the watershed abuse event. That oral injury in a non-mobile child is highly unlikely to be accidental. Their recommendation for dental examination being part of any assessment of alleged abuse is a powerful one. Moving on to a related area, Finn Lee's review explores the surprisingly extensive literature on abuse of animals by children. Such behaviour in a young child is regarded as largely exploratory, but should raise concerns for the child if perpetrated by those of school age. Examples include auto ratios of animal abuse as a marker for mistreatment of the index child, 2.93 at the age of 5 to 4.8 at the age of 12. The strength of association is greater in girls who are less likely to abuse animals, and the rates of personal or witness domestic abuse, spousal or partner abuse, very high in all older animal abusers. Survivors of near drowning. Despite 
much progress with preventative measures, both legislative and educational, drowning still ranks high just behind road traffic accidents as cause of accidental death globally. It's easy to forget that a successful resuscitation does not rule out future problems. Manglick and colleagues followed survivors of mainly warm water drowning in New South Wales, Australia, and showed a 22% cumulative prevalence of executive, emotional, behavioural or cognitive dysfunction, twice that of unexposed counterparts. Each area is theoretically amenable to intervention. Shouldn't all such children be followed up after their intensive care discharge? Getting measures right. Let's be honest, how often do we accept ballpark figures for weight in outpatients or during a ward mission in children with complex neurodisabilities? Is the most recent weight, a closed weight, estimated on adult scales after subtraction, really good enough on which to base both nutritional assessment and drug dosage? Is it really that hard to do well? Hardy et al. debunked this myth in their validation of anthropometric measurements in 53 children with learning disability. Technical errors of measurement between trained observers were low in all anthropometric measures, except waist circumference, though unsurprisingly less good in the non-standing children. Their findings are important and illustrate that there is no excuse not undertaking basic anthropometry, even in a stretch clinic. These then are just a few examples of the elephants in this issue, and I'd like to think Krilov would appreciate the sentiment. Maybe he would have likened them more to his belling the cat fable, but that's literally another tale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>